Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our conversations with stakeholders, experts, and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation, and better practices. I'm your host, Patrick Robinson, and I'm proud to contribute to the Safety with Purpose podcast network hosted by Safeopedia, where our mission is to lead, educate, and inspire. Today on Safety Talks, I'm chatting with Robert Pater, the founder and creator of MoveSmart, an organization that specializes in injury reduction through building high-level mental and physical tools to improve culture and performance. Robert is a prolific occupational health and safety author and commentator whose work dates back nearly 40 years through publications like Occupational Health and Safety Magazine, Professional Safety, in addition to many keynote and other presentations at a variety of safety forums and professional development conferences over those years. Industrial Safety and Hygiene News selected Robert as one of the Power 101 people who move and shake the safety world. Today's discussion is based on Robert's recent article, Invisible Leadership, that you can find at ohsonline.com. And now, Robert Pater. Robert, welcome to the Safety Talks podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Looking forward to speaking with you, Pat. Pleasure to have you here. So, uh, invisible leadership. Let's talk about uh, invisible organizational forces, because I think that'll get us uh, grounded to move on from there. Well, one of the things that my colleague, Paul McClellan, who's worked all over the world with all kinds of companies and industries, said to me once, and this has kind of cued me off, said, the culture you're seeing is generally not what the real culture you're getting. So what do you mean by that, Paul? And he said, well, there's so many things that you don't see. No matter how much, quote, out there a, a professional is, is or a leader is, they're, not going to, they're never going to be around all the time in all sites simultaneously. And I'm reminded of this thing I read. He said, basically, that there's two types of relationships that each of us have. There's relationship with what's known, what you see what's known, and there's the relationship with what's unknown. And of those two relationships, the relationship with what's unknown is more important because there's a lot more of it. For example, you don't see forces that are invisible. Uh, physical forces, radiation, magnetism, yeah. heat and cold, things like that. But there's organizational forces that affect worker safety dramatically as well. Competitive pressures, high pace, uh, whether people are working hurt or not. For example, I find that many leaders make assumptions. Again, what they see is what they think they're getting, and they don't always see beyond, we can't see beyond certain superficialities. So we, if we see somebody working, we think, oh, they're okay. They're 100%. They're not, on a, they're, they're, they're not disabled. They're not on a workers' comp claim. But Excuse me. The reality is people are not either hurt or 100%. The reality is, especially with, if you have an aging workforce, people working in certain fields like construction that are very physical, people may be working continuously with a certain degree of hampering and yet still doing that. So that's invisible. Things that people's health, people's worries and stresses are invisible, and yet they affect people's actions, their beliefs, their receptivity. 
So that's what I mean in terms of invisible forces. I think when it comes to invisible leadership, many people have the view of leadership that I've seen, that a leader is a strong alpha type person who's very forceful, charismatic, out there, makes things happen by force of will and personality and, and direction, and on an extreme, can be a command and control type person. And there, that is a type of leadership, and there's a call for that, especially in certain situations. But if you're trying to get more buy-in, if you're trying to get more uh, acceptance of safety actions, if you're trying to change what people are doing when you can't see them, which means at home, uh, at work, where they're not being supervised incredibly closely, it's important that their safety comes from within themselves, not just from outside of themselves. It's not just based upon external uh, uh, guards and monitoring or, or uh, policies and procedures or uh, um, behavioral audits, things like that. And so to do that, we've got to find a way to move where it's invisible to us, where they're, we're winning their hearts and minds, if you will. And so invisible leadership makes room. It's a, it's a softer leadership. It creates a space where people can walk in voluntarily to buy in for themselves as opposed to trying to convince, cajole, persuade them actively. Right. So you're, you're talking the, um, you had mentioned like the soft skills. So you're talking leaders more in terms of enabler, teacher, mentor, the person that sets up the circumstances for an organization and that the people in that organization to be successful, as opposed to the, the older view of um, someone who needs to be the disciplinarian or the one who makes sure people hew to the organizational rules and norms and, uh, you know, the, the, the difference between those two management approaches? Absolutely. And in my mind, Pat, there's a balance. So to me, another way of saying that is if you think of yin-yang uh, or projective-receptive, that best leaders are able to do both. So I'm not suggesting that leaders should give up on being uh, charismatic and persuasive and, and out there. So that's an extreme. To me, and unfortunately, the best... I, what best leaders do is not on extreme, although we see that. So it's nor the other extreme would be just being very soft and very uh, consultative and uh, counseling type. Or the best leaders have capabilities of doing both, can read situations and jump in as appropriately. So when it's needed to shut up, for, for example, uh, I've seen situations where people lead meetings. Uh, safety meetings, and they'll say, well, do you have any questions? Okay, well, since there are no questions, and they don't leave space for people to actually ask questions, as opposed to I've learned that I've had to discipline myself as a kind of a high-energy person, and I can be intimidating to people, or it, it can feel like, well, he's on a roll, and so uh, I don't have any time to come in and at, the, at a slower pace than Robert is speaking or, or is running this meeting. I've disciplined myself and learned, and it's with great effect for me, of being able to just take a few breaths, relax, and look around, and then wait. So that's yeah. an example of leading. There's a guy named Anil Mathur, who's the CEO and president of Alaska Tanker Company, which is the safest oil tanker company in the world. And uh, they ship 
oil from the Alaska pipeline down to refineries, okay? And they have gone over 20, I think 23 million hours, work hours, without, with one lost time injury, a broken finger. And this guy is also on the board of directors now, Anil is, of the American Society of Safety Professionals. And one of the things that Anil talks about is measuring the quality of safety communications. And I said, well, what, what do you mean by that, Anil? And he says, what we do is we actually started to, we don't do this any longer because our culture has progressed past that, where we need to measure that. We, we use other metrics. But we had metrics where we actually analyzed how much the amount of time the safety leader of a meeting was speaking and how much time other people were speaking in that meeting. So in other words, do you create space and time for people who are on a different pace, who have different levels of objections, who don't see safety in the same light, perhaps, that we as safety leaders do, to work things out on their own pace, to buy in, to try things? That's a, a, a pretty progressive technique. Um, the article indicates that uh, Alaska Tanker were using that as a leading indicator um, to, and, and feeding back, I presume, to the organization. And you've just mentioned that isn't in the article that they have since moved beyond that. So right. that's a, a leading indicator, frankly, I, I'd never had any visibility of. Significant food for thought for any organization that's concerned um, about the amount of uh, feedback and input from workers. It's a worthwhile thing to, to measure. Obviously, things that get measured get managed, and there's a, a dozen different takes on that particular theme, but um, this just seems like um, it would raise consciousness amongst everybody in the organization if this were a metric that everyone knew was being measured. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You've written quite a bit, and, and this came a lot of it out of our work with them, that there are four levels of safety culture. And when I, you, you, that kind of cued me off what you were talking about, about how they've moved beyond that, because you were reflecting what I had said. And to me, without spending a lot of time on this, but to me, the lowest level of safety culture is what I call a two culture. Safety is done on two other people, where basically the organization in a nutshell just doesn't really believe in safety. It's a, it's a pain in the rear. It's an obstacle. We do this just to keep our, our noses clean with regulators. And so we're going to do it as minimally as we possibly can. The next level of safety culture, and that's where, by the way, when Anil took over uh, as CEO and president of Alaska Tanker, that's where that company was because that's when we started working with them. So the second level, as you move up, ideally, is a culture where, where safety is done for people. And this is a, what I call a benevolent command and control culture, or as you pardon my terrible French pronunciation, a noblesse oblige culture, the, the obligation of the nobility, where, you know, our workers are like kids, or they're, they're recalcitrant or reluctant, or they horseplay, or they don't know what they're doing, you know, they're, they're, they're mindless. So we have to do it for them, but they're good people. But they're, so it's still a top-down culture where you don't trust your workers to do, to do, any, to do anything. And almost like childlike. You know, it's like you're not blaming them, you're not angry at them, but, and, but we have to do it for them because they just can't take care of themselves. So we've got to take care of them. It's just parental, really. Yeah. And the, as you move up, the next culture, uh, as organizations move up, is a culture, what I call a with culture. You do, oh, for us to, to us to get better results and change our culture and performance, and they go hand in hand, and my, what I've seen is that safety has to be done with people. This highly focuses on engagement. And so 
basically this is you get input and by the way when i talk about this they mirror this on a practical level and the last culture the highest level culture is a is a by culture i'm doing this for myself it's a it's an internalized culture if you will and what they did was when they did jsa's job safety analysis and organizations call those different things but what they did was they actually structured this in in the beginning the, the first level of the job safety analyses were done by senior management in their headquarters which was removed from all these ships that were moving you know a, a mobile workforce all over the place and then it was done for people by the ships themselves, by the leadership on the ships. And they showed it and required uh, their workers to sign off on that. Then it was done with the workers, where they got input from the workers. And on the highest level, where they are now, they do it by workers. So the workers totally do these job safety analysis themselves. It's reviewed by the safety professionals. But they consult with with these safety professionals as they're doing that. And so this tremendous buy-in. So safety, the, the ethic is, this is done by me for myself, which is where ideally you want to go if you want to move towards world-class performance. So this is the same thing that they did with quality of safety communications. They measured this in the beginning because they had to because they, it, they didn't believe that. And they tried to make a statement to the safety leaders is you've got to be quiet and leave space for people to talk. And it doesn't count to say, well, what do you think, Bill, over there, and calling on people and embarrassing them. That's not the same thing because then they'll get minimal responses. When you push on people, you'll get pushback. So this is how, what, these are some of the techniques and approaches to understand how do you move, what are the qualities of different levels of culture to say, okay, how do I go? What, what do they say? If you want your next level job, dress for that job, act as if you're in that job. If you want your next level of culture, you've got to adopt some of the policies and the characteristics of that next highest level of culture. Yeah, much to unpack there, but it leads nicely into to this concept. And so talk a little bit about the balance that executives and other leaders can strive for to improve uh, the cultures of their organizations and specifically this concept of the leaderless task group, because um, there's elements of what you just described there. So um, leaderless was a term I first heard from a guy I, I trained with a long time ago, he's passed now, but a brilliant organizational uh, uh, psychologist, Jack Gibb, G-I-B-B, and he talked about leaderless groups, but when I talked to Jack, what I really thought he meant was leaderful groups, with the idea being that what really leadership is, and, if you, and this is not just my saying this, if you read a lot of the seminal work and research on leadership, you'll see that there's so many functions of of an organization needs to be uh, uh, to get things done. So it's not just projective, again, that one side of projective, it's not just listening and facilitating and, and helping draw people out. It's all of the above and more. So you really need to be a leaderful group. So to me, I think that there are seven points, seven things that come off that, that work. One is, and a lot of this is starting really with the mindset of leaders. So part of it is they're thinking and making an agreement with themselves of being willing to do less and asking others to do more and opening the door and opening, again, as I mentioned, I think earlier, making space for people to do things, not doing everything yourself. So for example, 
You know, when most people talk about delegating tasks, okay, so we have to run safety meetings. Well, the typical uh, alpha approach or command and control approach or even uh, uh, level two safety culture approach, which is benevolent parental approach would be, well, I'm going to do this for them. I'm going to structure this. I'm going to uh, um, script this all out. And then we'll get, maybe, maybe I'll get other people to read my script. Well, they're never going to read it as convincingly. They won't be bought in. They'll do it as minimally probably as possible is what I find. So what that means is anytime you want to, have to create a space to delegate is be willing to delegate things where you ask them, what part of this do you want to do? And also be willing to delegate things that you're not as you're good at. So the problem with delegation in most leaders that I've seen is they make a mistake. People tend to, if they have two types of tasks, things that they know a lot of, the leader knows a lot about, things that the leader doesn't know that much about, I, my experience is most people will tend to default towards delegating what they don't know. And so then it becomes a blind leading the blind. And, you know, it, it does make, it, it makes some room, but you can't help people and, and support people in terms of when if they, if they run into a brick wall, they don't know what to do. Being part of making space is saying, you know, I'm going to let go of the ego of having to be smart, of having to be knowledgeable about everything. And I'm going to let other people make space and see what they do and how they handle their approach. So, for example, if I know as an HSC leader a lot about PPE, personal protective equipment, and I think I know all the ways to do this. And rather than tell him, this is what you should use, this is the safest thing, try this, do the, exactly what I say, another approach would be, uh, what are your favorite sports and hobbies? What do you like to do? What, where do you spend your time off work? Do these have any safety risks? Uh, what are they? And do you use any kind of equipment that mitigates, that reduces that risk, that reduces the amount of force potentially entering your body, which is what PPE does? And so ask them, let them go with that and talk about what they like to do already, where they're naturally inclined. So that's part of number two, which is keep inviting people to participate. And questions like, what, like asking them, rather than like developing questions for a safety investigation, asking a team, what questions should we ask? You know, what, what should we try? Who's willing to try out new personal protective equipment and make recommendations? How are you going to base these recommendations? Do you need any help in this? Uh, one of my uh, colleagues said, if you were the safety king for a day, what would be the first thing here? you would like to change and how would you go about making that change are you willing to participate you don't have to be the totally only leader but are you willing to help along with that as part of a team so that is part two which is inviting and continue to invite the one of the things an error that i think that uh, many leaders make who are well-intentioned when they want more engagement is they invite once and if they don't get response they give up and don't invite again well they're not interested as opposed yeah. to continuing to invite, because sometimes people may not think you're serious the first time. And leaving space, like I mentioned earlier, waiting for them. Say, hey, you don't have to decide right now. You can come back to me. You can send me a note. If you don't want to say anything verbally right now in front of other people, that's okay. Catch me up later individually. Send me a message, however you'd like. My reference points are, are primarily industrial construction, but I often wondered... What would uh, a project safety plan look like if all the decision-making, the processes, and uh, the various forms and so on that, that support elements of a, a comprehensive 
construction safety management plan. What would that look like if it were completely up to labor? Mm-hmm. So without prescription from management um, and typically the, the lead contractor, whoever that might be, um, and their uh, you know, scar tissue that they've acquired over the years uh, of being in operation, so on, which informs, of course, not just legislation, but company-specific rules and regulations and ways and means and, and various other things. But just what would a program look like if it were strictly up to labor? You know, would there be far fewer forms <laughs> to complete? Uh, would there be far higher trust in the collective and knowledge of, of the workforce than, than what typically is in place culturally um, at, these, uh, at, at these particular um, facilities uh, and, and larger type projects? It'd be an interesting experiment for a progressive construction company to try. Anyway, I'm used about that from time to time. Yeah, yeah, because you have several thoughts. I think it's a very uh, interesting and challenging uh, thought. And, I, and my, my initial response is that part of it depends upon to do with this, on where the, cult, the level of culture of your, uh, in your organization is. So, for example, if your workers are, have been effectively trained to not think, check your brains at the time clock kind of culture, which I've seen a lot, where they're trained, just do as I say, your job is to do and not to think, not to question. And, and they're, you basically, it's sort of like they've been hampered. They're on a leash, a strong leash, to then turn around and say, well, what, do you, what should we do? It's all up to you. They're not ready for that. So you have to get to, to get, that's a level that you have to progress to get to that point of, mm-hmm. of, of, of developing slowly, where they are able to make those um, okay, valuable input. But part of that, too, is the other side of that, which goes hand in hand with that, is that I, I said earlier, talked about the, to me the two levels of types of leadership that's both energizing or projective and introjective or receptive leadership, on the other hand, that you need to have both a balance of that. So for me, here's how I would handle what you said. I would, I would say there's, we have two sets of questions for you. One, in an ideal world where you could wave your magic wand and create this place that would the policies and procedures and approaches that would make it the easiest and the sa- easiest and the safest way for you to get your job done what would you do what would you reduce or eliminate okay number two okay and then I, it's this way when people brainstorm or thinking it's always great to give them a free reign open-ended questions to begin with but then to start limiting them to say okay now in the real world we have to fulfill a contract we have uh, regulators we have to deal with. You may, you may feel like you personally can do things without uh, you know, tying off from height, but other people can't. And we have, again, rules and regulations about that. And so given the fact about the, the constrictions of our contractual arrangement, the constrictions and that we have the regulations that we have to work with, now what would you do? How would you modify these? See, that to me is how I would start training people to think that way, to become, and again, you're basically creating them as leaders. So they're taking responsibility for themselves because what, when I say invisible leadership, what I'm really working towards in my mind is moving safety from a purely externalized safety from where it's from the outside in, where people are told to do this and they're going to be reinforced positively or negatively externally to do this. But, and even with that, and then you, of course, you can't see what they're really doing, unfortunately. So you're making guesses about a portion of behavior 
indicator or you're only going off of trailing indicators which only tell you so much and way too little or as opposed towards moving more towards an internalized safety culture, the level four safety culture, where people are doing safety because they believe it's right for them, where they see the balance and they accept the balance of getting the job done with the constrictions they have, time frames, regulations, are, are, are the people we're contracting with, etc., and protecting myself and doing this job as effectively with high quality as possible. So that's what my, my approach is. Great. That's, that's a, a ton of good information there. You had mentioned uh, seven aspects of how um, organizations can move towards more effective and visible leadership. So let's take on those seven and, and review those. One is think of doing less and asking others to do more, and I talked about that. Second is keep inviting participation with questions, with invitations, sometimes privately, individually. Uh, sometimes instead of saying, would you do this, would you be willing to volunteer, saying, well, what are you interested in? Spark their interest first. Uh, one of the ways, by the way, a technique for invitation to get more t engagement that I found that works really well is always start with closed-ended questions followed with open-ended questions. So rather than saying, um, who here would be willing to participate in a task force to investigate the best PPE, is to say, is there anybody here who feels like we could do a, do you believe we could do a better job in selecting PPE? Yes or no? And the people who do say yes now say, well, those who said yes, would you be willing to do something with minimal time? And by the way, one of the keys that I have found is if you want to change, make it as easy for people to change as possible. So the, I find the less you ask people to do something different, the more likely they'll do it, especially when you're trying to break the ice, when you're trying to get them to do something they haven't done before. Number three is surface who the hidden peer leaders in your companies are and figure out how you can support them to be more effective safety proponents or deputies of safety. Yeah. We spend a lot of time, most of what we do in our organization with some of the largest companies literally all over the world is we train workers, peers, associates, different companies, call them different things um, to become better peer leaders, activated peer leaders of safety where they have information and they wind up first training and coaching and reinforcing. Incredibly powerful because they will see and they'll give you information too without not ratting on people, but giving you intelligence, hidden intelligence about what is going on, what people really feel what, about safety, what they're really doing, what they're not doing, where the holes are. Plus, they're around to influence all the time. I cannot emphasize enough how powerful that approach is strategically towards change. And plus, there's less resistance from people from working, getting information and getting influence from people side by side as opposed to somebody who is on another level or comes in, breezes in every once so, so often. Number four is select, which is really goes together, is after you surface them, train them and support them so they become, we call them safety catalysts. So they really go together, number three and number four. Number five is actively look to give credit for people who've made even small amounts, small changes that are meaningful initiatives of spreading safety culture performance. For so sure. um, one of the things that I have found in every organization, there are people who are hidden safety heroes already who are working alongside, they, they may do things for themselves. For example, they're working on a, uh, uh, 
a manufacturing plant and there's a sharp uh, edge that they have to work over or it's cold. And so they pad the edge. They bring in their own padding and sit there and, and find, find a way to say, why do you do it? You do anything for yourself. You can either do it through observation or interview. Say, what, you're doing anything else to make this easier and safer. Sometimes people respond to easier more than they will to safer, but they often go together. And it's a less loaded word for people for, in a negative way for some people, at least, unfortunately. And so then to say, well, so Bill over here on this line has done this, if they give their permission to talk about it, and, and set them up as a hero about they've discovered this, can, you can use this as well. So finding ways to, to really recognize people, not for what they're going to do, but what they've already been doing, that makes it more likely they'll do it more. I find that all the attitude change in the world pales in comparison in terms of effectiveness to when people are successful and are recognized for being successful. Recognition doesn't have to be a formal thing presented by, and in fact, I'd argue it's less uh, effective and less long-lasting when um, it's super formalized and there's a plaque or something like that. Um, and uh, a person representing the company that the individual doesn't even know or really interact with comes down and, and, and makes a production. Um, while I think that makes executives feel good that they're participating and contributing and doing the leadership thing, um, in terms of culture building, I think that that approach is, is less effective than someone being acknowledged um, in the company of their peers by a direct supervisor or um, perhaps somebody one level above um, that direct supervisor. That's far more tangible, far more meaningful, um, and you know that the person that is providing those accolades is doing so from a position of knowledge and what the, the true impact of the innovation or the contribution, whatever it might be that's being recognized, actually is. Heartily agree, Pat. And let me, if, can I, if I can add to that, if you kind of piggyback on what you're saying. Anytime you're doing a formal pro process, it's going to take time. There's going to be a delayed effect. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. always a lagging indicator thing. When you do it the way you're talking about, it can be much more spontaneous. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be at, at our safety meeting, at our toolbox meeting. I just want to take a few moments to do this. What I would add for that, and it's, it's more energy, because what we haven't really talked about is a lot of real change in safety culture that, is, again, is, and I've written a lot about this because I, I believe it and I've seen it, is energizing safety. Too much of safety is boring for people, dead for people, uh, pro forma, through the motions, like you say. And this is an example. Anything you can do to move it to being more spontaneous, more alive, more real, starts changing the view and the association of safety. Safety helps me live my life better. It's exciting. It's not boring. It's not something that reduces what I can do and limits me. It adds and, and lengthens and contributes to what I can do. And so what I would add to you is everything you're saying, I fully agree with, with the addition, if I might, that the senior management is there and may not say a thing, just is there with his or her presence at where possible, whoever's up there. It doesn't have to say a thing, so it's still coming from there, but they're participating non-verbally and clapping their hands like everybody else, and later maybe going over to the person privately. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I'll, I'll loop in um, 
another thought on executives and where I think that uh, they make a far larger impact, and that is there's few things more powerful than an executive in the field where work is being executed and um, not doing an observation or prompting a conversation based on an observation of, of, of say, safe work um, and, and, hey, congratulations, you know, you're, you're working safely, because um, that always has an element of sort of big brotherness to me. Um, but rather just uh, having a conversation that is primarily about the worker and the worker's well-being. Not necessarily, hey, I see you're wearing all your gear or look, you're, you're using proper form um, while doing manual material handling. Just having a conversation about, um, and, and you'd reference some of this earlier in this conversation about well-being, trying to connect on a human level and then having a specific conversation with safety is that the primary theme. There's few things more valuable and more impactful than that particular activity. Fully, fully agree. Um, I think that ultimately culture, when it comes down to it, I mean, culture is obviously behaviors and attitudes and thought. You know, it's got mental and physical components. But in terms of what really goes on in a culture, culture is about relationships. Good culture has good relationships. Weak cultures have weaker relationships, or and by say weaker, command and control. Do this because it makes me look good. Do this, or else you're going to be in trouble. That's kind of a weaker relationship, or kind of a uh, uh, a, a kind of a, a prescriptive uh, punishment-oriented culture, as we said. I, I agree with you, and really, what it comes down to on a broader level, what you're saying is how people look at safety. And to me, I think it's critical that executives, I work quite a bit with executives, and what executives, I think, hopefully will start seeing safety, and again, it's from top down and from bottom up at the same time, everybody starts seeing safety, is that safety is not about the absence of bad things happening only. That's what, unfortunately, a lot of people default towards for what I've seen. I see safety as the presence of being able to get the things done that you really want to get done that are important to you at a high level, feeling really good with minimal fatigue and getting effective at the same time. So safety is the presence of positive actions and approaches as opposed to the absence of bad things that, hap- that might happen that most people don't think are going to happen to them anyway because they're too strong or it's never happened before or whatever or it's inevitable or something like that. So I agree with you fully. And in, in terms of what you said, my colleague Paul McClellan said he same thing you're, you said. He has this, this theme: make it conversations, not observations. That doesn't mean you can't do observations, but you want to vary and want to lean towards the side of conversing with people with concern and making good contact, as opposed to standing above them or outside of them. Because my experience in observations is that people know they're being observed. And again, you talk about invisible. You talk about invisible leadership. You're not invisible. There's a thing called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, which basically a physicist uh, came up with and said that subatomic particles are changed by the observer, the magnetic fields of the observer. So there's nothing that's really a pure observation, even with non-human beings. And with humans, people know they're being observed. And they either, in my experience, when they know they're being observed, will either, depending upon their level of morale and what's going on, will give the observer what they think the observer wants, or they'll give the observer what they think the observer doesn't want if they're ornery, or if it's a really low morale kind of culture. In either case, it's being 
doesn't change. It's an externalized type of operation, like you said, and, and from the outside in, as opposed to her saying, you know, I, w- I really want to thank you, and I admire what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing here. And, you know, you're an inspiration for me. I've learned something from you. Something that's genuine, not parroting any of those words because they're words that some guy said you should say. But whatever comes from an approach of making good contact with people and seeing things from their perspective and how their lives are improved. Uh, I know Mather talked about a, uh, when he started changing the culture in his organization, when they were a low-level culture, when he first took over, was somebody got hurt and he called the captain of that ship to fly into corporate headquarters. And his first question was, who is this person? Does he have a wife? Does he have children? What does he like to do? How does he spend his time? And the captain says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He said, and, and Anil said, to, said, well, you clearly don't know anything about this worker. You obviously don't care much about him as a person. How do you expect to change him? I want you to sit there and I want you to come up with a plan about what you're going to do differently to make this change. And he made a big point. He said, then he said, now call all the other captains of the other ships that your peers and tell them what just happened. He says, you're not going back to your ship until this happens. So he took his basically it was several levels down, but high level, the captains on ships are the CEOs of that ship, the people who have a lot of power, a lot of influence. And he called them on the carpet. But it's the same thing you're talking about is knowing your people, making contact with them. Again, relationships, good relationships breed good culture. It makes it more likely to positively influence people about safety. So that covers off pretty pretty handily giving credit and, and establishing some of those cultural things that uh, really move organizations to the, uh, to the next level. Um, let's talk about promoting discovery. Too often uh, in many organizations, safety is externalized. It's prescribed with best intent. We've got to keep our nose clean with regulators. This is the best method we've found. This is how you're going to do this job in this way. And it doesn't leave room for individuality. Now, obviously, we can't say, well, my individuality means I'm not going to lock out and tag out on this potentially hazardous, energized machine. That's way past extreme. I am not suggesting that. But when someone discovers something, a safety method that you've been telling about for years, you know, it's much more effective than you're just hearing it. When people just are told something, they often resist that, or it goes in one ear and out one another. And so best organizations find ways to build in discovery. A simple example, if a leader has been telling something to somebody or a group for a long period of time and not getting any traction, no response, to, and feels frustrated, a tendency on leaders is to say, wait a second. I've been saying this for the last 10 years, and you just listen, what's the matter with you? You're slow, or some variation on that. The the response, the best leaders, strong leaders will swallow that, relax, and go, great idea. I really like that. Our operative principle here is that the 20 things that the safety leader tells or directs workers to do is less valuable than the one or two things that they they buy into, they discover for themselves, and they do. That's where they'll have energy. That's where they'll be committed, even when you're not watching them, when they're not being observed. So that's one of the, that's one of the things. And it goes with letting them get credit for their own discovery. But part of discovery, for example, on a technical, practical level, is if you've got a new piece of equipment, let them try things out. Um, I'll give you one example. There was a company 
that we worked with a long time ago that we're seeing uh, they're, they're manufacturing, uh, heavy manufacturing. I don't want to reveal their famous company. I don't want to reveal who it is. And um, they're finding that in the process of, of joining metal, there was riveters and buckers. And riveting is a process of basically using a rivet gun, expands a metal rivet, it fills a hole, it flattens out and fills a hole between two, pieces, two or more pieces of metal, it joins them. And so they found that with a lot of these riveters were getting carpal tunnel syndrome and other, uh, and other upper limb problems, often related to vibration. They said, oh, we got, the pro- we got the answer. The ergonomics department, there's a huge ergonomics department because this, this company at that site had 25,000 workers spread at different locations in this one city mm. at that point. And so what they did was they bought these great recoilless rivet guns, which basically were rivet guns with a spring in them to absorb the shocks so it wouldn't be transmitted to the arm, the upper limbs of the workers. And they gave them out and they went, oh, great. Great, great job is done. You know, they congratulate themselves and injuries went up and they went, what? And so the good news is what they could have done, which would have been very poor leadership to say, what's the matter with you and come down heavy. You're not doing this right. You come down and and berate them or punish them or something. But some wise person, I don't know who it was, said, what is going on here? And they observed and they talked to people. And they found out, because they, they were not riveters themselves, these ergonomists and safety people, that riveting is a, is a skill like many physical skills that are kinesthetic. People who are riveting are looking for the feeling of the set of the rivets. It's not just visual. It's a feeling. And so what happened was, because this, all of a sudden the spring in this new riv call, this rivet gun was, was different, they couldn't feel the set in the same way. They were leaning in much harder. And so what they were doing is they were counteracting the spring. They were compressing the spring in the rivet gun using more instead of less force. More force rebounded because every action is equal opposite reaction into their limbs. So what did they do? They used the principle of discovery. They created a uh, riveting lab where they took scrap pieces of this very expensive metal that didn't matter if they made a mistake or not on, and they pulled people out and let them experiment with riveting. And so they said, you're on your own. Feel play, play with it. Discover what works for you. You can feel the set, and it varied. For some people, and that's one of the things about discovery, people work on their different time zones, different lo- times as well. For some people, it took five minutes. Some people, it took up to half an hour. But everyone got it. They went back to work, and injuries plummeted. Example of discovery. So I let them get credit for that. That's number six. And my seven of seven points is, again, I kind of alluded to this, focus more on internalizing safety by transferring skills, especially at self-monitoring, where people can look at themselves. Hey, I'm tired now. I need to. I'm, I'm cranky. And my, my, I, I'm kind of like feeling a little bit ornery. And so this is affecting my, this maybe affecting my decision-making process. My tension's wavering because I'm worried about something else going on uh, or my balance is off or my, in other words, what is going on inside of me? As well as even when it comes to what we work with, which is soft tissue injuries a lot, which is where is force mounting in my body? What do I feel like? going on is there are there spots that are just off did i when i woke up today you know for some reason every day is different and my my neck was a little bit sore more than yesterday okay i gotta watch i gotta make sure that i don't don't make it worse by the position i take can i make a slight change that'll make a difference so to me this is is when you can start focusing on people internalizing safety you're basically invisibly 
helping them as a leader become more the leader of their own safety lives. You may not be able to see the small adjustments they're making. It's invisible, but they're making them nonetheless, and you will see it in both hopefully the results of morale, of satisfaction, and of reduced trailing indicators of injuries going down. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, I think every one of us, when we wake up, at least I do, uh, consider sort of where I am uh, on that particular day in terms of how rested I feel when I get up. And there's uh, some days that I, I feel particularly fatigued, um, that I haven't got a good sleep or a very restful sleep. And on those particular days, I try to make a mental note, uh, particularly when I'm driving, that I'm probably not as sharp as I am on my average day when I'm driving. So that means I'll, I'll, I'll try to take uh, more time when I'm changing lanes, um, take fewer risks. It's always the left turn. If you're, you're doing a left turn into traffic, um, traffic is streaming by. There's a intersection by uh, where I live that it's uh, two lanes in one direction, two lanes in the other. I have to make a left turn. Um, I absolutely on these days will try to consciously give myself more time in the gaps. And that might mean I sit there for 30 seconds or 60 seconds longer, typically not more than that. Um, but I know that I don't have the same acuity that I normally would have. Um, and I think most of us also have this, like the circadian rhythm thing in the hours of... Um, early afternoon, where we typically have this ramping down of energy and attention. So I, I shift sort of what I'm doing on many days um, to accommodate tasks where I require less concentration. So I find that uh, I'll be reading something in, in these hours and uh, just not be absorbing very much information. Um, so I deliberately try to find other things to do um, in those uh, couple of hours in early afternoon. Uh, so these are just things that I think um, picking up in your thought about um, just being situational awareness and being aware of how you typically behave um, uh, and how you're interacting with the workplace and, and uh, um, other people in the workplace, uh, I think just helps people take a little bit more ownership of um, what they do day by day and just be a little more mindful of uh, how they go about uh, executing. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we have a, a saying, that we use is that small changes can make large differences. It doesn't have to be a big thing that happens. You know, if you look at soft tissue injuries, many people, what, what is the straw that broke the camel's back that actually is the incipient last force in a, in a soft tissue, a strain, a sprain, is often something very small, picking up a piece of paper off the floor, bending over, twisting, or whatever. It's, and it's often what, what hurts us, again, the straw of a thousand, the, the, the death by a thousand cuts, in this case, injury by a thousand uh, small actions. The good news is on the other side is that small changes that we make and, and changing attention, like being a little bit moving from a little bit less, like your example, less unconscious driving and thinking about other things and going on automatic pilot so it's taking a little bit more conscious control of your driving makes a big difference. It's very small, again, not visible or monitorable by other people. It makes a big difference in people's lives and in their safety as well. Fully agree. And fatigue, like you mentioned, is not just physical, it's mental as well. They go together. And so to, this is all part of what I'm talking about is that part of invisible leadership, it, it, this is kind of an underlying theme, I think, is that 
they're not just looking at people as mechanical objects. They're not machine, just machines. They're much more than that. They have a mind. They have emotions. And the best safety leaders, the best leaders in organizations, not just safety leaders, can tap into and unify that and use the resources of of people overall. In other words, their commitment, their belief structure, their uh, attention, which is all changeable in small ways and move as well as what they do physically towards helping them live with much greater safety and focus. Yeah, for certain. Um, Robert, thanks very much for, uh, for this conversation. Again, this is regarding your article, uh, Invisible Leadership, that uh, is found at ohsonline.com. Uh, also, tell the listeners uh, where you can be found. You have a LinkedIn profile and a website, yeah? Right, yeah. LinkedIn, my name is Robert Pater. And I, I don't know if there's other Robert Paters out there, but you'll find me if you do Safety Robert Pater. And I write monthly articles for Occupational Health and Safety Magazine. And I write uh, six or eight times a year for Professional Safety Magazine, the American Society of Safety Professionals. And website is movesmart.com. M-O-V-E-S-M-A-R-T dot com. Nice. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard today or liked other podcasts in this series, please leave a review for us on Google or Apple or wherever you access your podcasts. If you'd like to comment directly or have subject matter that you think would be of interest to the Safety with Purpose community and would like to guest on the show, feel free to email me at pat.robinson at safopedia.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.